You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. In the city where I live, there are at least three hosts of other daily news podcasts. I have no idea how much money they make. They don't know my salary either. Yet I can tell you that here in this province, more than 5,000 police constables made at least $100,000 in 2021. And I can tell you that the highest paid among them is a fellow named Michael Robert Minogue, who made $266,547 last year. How do I know that? Because Ontario publishes all the six-figure salaries of public employees every single year. And what happens when that list becomes public? Well, mostly, people complain about how much money these public servants make. Frontline workers in healthcare are neglected thanks to this Premier's Bill 124, but the Premier CEO of Ontario Health got a $186,000 raise just this year. I am sure if my salary was public, people would complain about that too. After all, I provide a less vital service than, say, a police constable. Or if you dislike the police, then one of the 120 public transit operators who made six figures last year. I don't think you'd ever ask me about my salary, though, because that's private. It's ingrained in us to be sensitive around matters of pay. But should we be this private? What happens when the only salaries ever made public are those of highly paid public servants? What happens when salaries like mine or my boss's or my boss's boss's are never disclosed? Well, we end up reinforcing Canada's institutional penchant for secrecy in more than just salary disclosure. And that's where a lot of our problems begin. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Robin Doolittle is a part of the Globe and Mail's investigative team. Over the past couple of years, she spent countless hours tracking down salaries public and private for a series on pay equity that is called The Power Gap. Hey, Robin. Hey, Jordan. For those who don't know, or uh, for those outside Ontario whose province may not have one or may call it something different, can you just explain what Ontario's sunshine list is? Yeah. So, okay, the sunshine list. In short, uh, sometime in the mid-1990s, I believe it was 1996, the premier at the time, Mike Harris, introduced this new thing where all public employees whose salary exceeded $100,000 would once a year have their name and compensation published. It is now online and searchable. But but that was uh, kind of the first uh, look at this public sector salary disclosure list. And since then, provinces across the country have adopted similar legislation. Almost all the provinces have some sort of public sector salary disclosure. What's the stated purpose behind doing this? We can get into what actually happens in a moment, but like, what's the the stated reason for it? Well, I mean, you're getting at the very issue here. What is the purpose of it? The Sunshine List began during an era of 
uh, cuts, austerity, amalgamation under the Harris government. And people have said, you know, this is an example to shame high earning public employees. There are others who discuss this as a, a mechanism for transparency. And in some provinces, it is, you know, under financial transparency acts that, that this is, that this information is being made public. You and I, um, and basically every other young reporter who came up doing city news or provincial beats or whatever has had to cover uh, a Sunshine List or something like it at one time. What do those? What shape do those stories generally take, and and how do people approach it? <laughs> I'm sure I've written. Uh, oh my gosh, how many Sunshine List stories? So yeah, there, I mean, you always see the Toronto Sun is going to write a story saying this is how many teachers are are on the Sunshine List, or how many nurses are on the Sunshine List. You're going to see other. Um, outlets may be running. This is, you know, the number of police officers who have made the sunshine list. There is certainly an element of kind of voyeurism to it. Um, often, you know, this this is how much this this one CEO makes. This is how much, um, you know, this one company or uh, not company. This is how much this one crown corporation uh, is costing in total. And then you see some of the more nuanced. There's this number of um, of women, although those stories are harder to do because the Sunshine List doesn't list gender. So it's often smaller groups where you can individually count people. In general, I think what you're getting at is that it's not a very sophisticated take a lot of the time. There's a lot of kind of that you know, the, the flurry of stories that follows the latest Sunshine List announcement that it does kind of feed into this. We want to know how much people make and uh, an element of shaming for sure. That doesn't mean we should get rid of it, uh, but that is a reality. As I mentioned off the top, we wanted to talk to you about this because of your work in the pay equity space with the power gap. And so you've spent a lot of your time uh, over the past couple of years trying to track down who makes what, not just uh, in public corporations, but particularly in you know places like law firms and other corporate entities. Tell me a bit about how difficult it is to get those figures and, and how you go about trying to track them down. So my colleague Chen Wang and I started this reporting, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, a couple of years ago. It began as an effort to try to answer this question, do men and women um, who are doing the same job make the same amount? The problem, of course, in trying to investigate something like this is salaries in Canada are secret. So we had kind of two options. One is to try to get internal documents leaked to us by sources, which is how we did some of the reporting on law firms. But the the big bank of information that is available is uh, the public sector. And that is because, as mentioned, most provinces have some form of public sector salary disclosure. So uh, Chen and I collected, I think it's something like 90,000 records of employees who work in the public sector. And then I got their names and their their compensation, their job titles, and then married that data set with statistics from Statistics Canada on the probability that a first name is associated with a specific gender. And in Canada, 90% of names are associated with a specific gender 95% of the time. So very high um, confidence in that. And, and through this, we were able to map the entire country in these certain sectors that we focused on. 
and to look at not just the overall pay gap, but the distribution of men and women um, in leadership positions and in the leadership pipeline. So those lower level management jobs. And that's ultimately what the big, I think, reveal of that series was, is that it's not that women aren't making it to the top. They're not. We know that. But they're not making it through the middle. And of the very few women who do make it to the top, they're almost all white. And that was only um, possible because of the sunshine list. And, and just to that last point, that adding that, that elements that we know that uh, the women who actually do make it to the top are white, we needed the full names of people because names are not a reliable indicator of race. So we had to actually manually check thousands of people's bios to uh, get a sense of, of their backgrounds. So again, this is you know one of the really good things about the sunshine list. What does it do to the reporting that you're trying to put together when so much of the data that you have comes from public employees and you're then fighting through whatever it is you have to fight through in order to kind of compare that with data in the private sector? Does that kind of skew it a little bit or how do you how do you marry those two things? Yeah, our series really did have to cobble together uh, data for this. So we had the public sector, which is limited in a lot of ways. I mean, it's only employees who are making more than a hundred thousand. In in there's a couple places where it's lower than a hundred thousand, but just to keep things even, we we used a hundred as a baseline. It's obviously not covering a huge number of jobs. When we were reporting on law firms, we were able to obtain uh, the internal compensation grid for the equity partners. So these are the highest paid uh, people at the law firms. Uh, it doesn't cover you know, the associates or the non-equity partners. So this is really skewed, again, when you're talking about corporate Canada, uh, it's really just the top, usually five executives at these uh, companies where salary is public. So again, it, it's a very narrow view and you you glean as much as you can from it. Um, why when we're doing this type of reporting, we look to a place like the United Kingdom where uh, some measures of, of uh, the gender wage gap are required to be released by all large businesses and entities. And we're just very, uh, you know, jealous of, of the journalists in, in some other countries that have more access to this kind of basic information. That's where we're going to go right now, because all of this has sort of been a preamble to paint a picture of just how difficult it can be to get uh, accurate information on salary disparity in Canada. So when that sunshine list was released recently in Ontario, um, I saw a lot of people complaining, and, and we talked about it off the top, the, the element of shaming people who make more than $100,000. I saw a lot of people complaining that making this public unfairly targets these workers. Um, but you pushed back against that being a reason not to do this disclosure. Explain that to me. So in, in my role as an investigative journalist, I spend a lot of time kind of doing deep dives, whether it's on a company or a structure of power or individuals. And it is so hard to do that type of reporting in Canada because just in general, basic stuff that is public elsewhere, you can't get your hands on here. I did an investigation of the Champlain Towers. This is the condo that collapsed in Florida last summer. It was built by Canadian developers. The American leg of that reporting took three days. This is finding other buildings that these people built 
and the the history of those buildings. It's online in, in the United States and Florida. In Canada, it took us three to four months just to gather that stuff. And only a fraction of it was available. And it cost more than $5,000. What am I talking about? You're asking, why is this relevant to the sunshine list? It's because in general, we have this this culture in Canada of immense secrecy and this knee-jerk reaction around privacy. And, you know, it was interesting to me when the the Sunshine List is released that there's just this huge, I, I find, it's not everywhere, but this push of this information should not be public because it, it, it this is this is uncomfortable for people to have their salaries out there. I, I don't disagree that it is uncomfortable for that um, you know, t- to be on the sunshine list in some ways, or it could be uncomfortable, but it's not a reason to not have it available. There is an immense public interest in being able to see where public men- money is being spent. Having the sunshine list out there does not just have to be, oh, I want to go look up what my neighbor is making. No, th- there is a- an immense public interest in this. It's who is making what, what types of people are making what. Is there nepotism happening? Are there conflict, conflicts of interest happening? When we were doing our power gap reporting, I can't tell you the number of women and people of color who told me that they were able to negotiate a higher salary or push back against a low offer because they checked the sunshine list to see what their predecessor had made. If they did not have that information available to them, they would be making much less money now. At the end of the day, like, with, with, with public money, there needs to be transparency around this. Is there a better way to do this? The thing that I keep thinking of is, especially in Ontario, again, you mentioned there's different thresholds in other provinces, but the thing I keep thinking of is, if this wasn't presented to us as, hey, these are the people making $100,000 or more, there might not be that element of embarrassment or shaming to it. You know, it's like there's this arbitrary cutoff. It's like, well, you must be doing pretty well, so we're going to share yours. Yeah, it, it's funny. Um, so often when you get in these kind of back and forth about the sunshine list, we're kind of missing the point. One of the common uh, criticisms of the Sunshine List is that it hasn't been indexed to inflation in Ontario. So other provinces like Alberta have moved the threshold higher. In Alberta, I believe it's almost 150,000 now. But this is maybe playing into what the Sunshine List was originally meant to be, which is, you know, exposing the salaries of high-income public servants. I, along with with others, have said no. It should be it should be zero dollars. This should just be public information. We we should be able to know what the, the salaries of all public employees. And I, I don't um, have any philosophical problem of it not being posted online in a sunshine list. It could be done through freedom of information. Uh, you know, a little bit of a barrier there to get that information although our freedom of information system is completely broken. So that seems scary (laughs) to put it there, but um, that's an entire other podcast. That's an entire other podcast, but yes, like you, there are so many good reasons that all of this should just be public. Every entity that does business with the government, that contract should just be proactively posted online. It's part of shifting our entire culture. I was in a, Gainesville, Florida, a couple of years ago for a conference doing a journalism talk and, they were showing me, they just were casually showing me like, oh, the local city councilors 
all of their email is public in real time. You can just look at the inbox what? of a city councilor all day long. They didn't even think about it. It was just like, oh, let's check what's happening here. Yeah, sometimes it's nice to do keyword searches. You can check. Like this is, we're talking six months of fighting to get a single email that should be public. This is where it's, we're just as a, a society hiding behind this false shield of privacy. And, and it's makes it very hard to investigate things like corruption in this country, frankly. Where did this come from and how has it remained like this for so long? You know, it, it might be hard to pinpoint exactly when it emerged, but I also keep coming back to the fact that uh, at, at the very least, the Trudeau government and other governments in other provinces keep vowing to bring in more transparency. Like that was one of uh, the Liberals' 2015 promises in their campaign to be a more transparent government. Um, I'm going to assume you will say that that hasn't happened. Like, why does this endure here but not elsewhere? Where does Canada's culture of secrecy come from? I mean, I, I think it's really hard to say. I'm sure. So, I'm sure some very smart people have looked at this as sort of a historical or anthropological study. It's just deeply ingrained in us that like, you know, that sense of the Canadian politeness, I guess. Um, the Trudeau government made many promises around opening our access to information system, and it has just gotten so much worse. Uh, and for, for so many reasons, the the you know the greatest hits of reasons why i mean it's understaffed i think across the country access to information and foi coordinators um our legislation is wasn't we were among the first countries to pass this type of legislation so it's the oldest and it hasn't been properly updated the sitting governments are not incentivized to um make information public and i honestly though the, the biggest reason that this is happening is that Canadians don't care. Canadians like privacy. That's why my head always explodes every time the sunshine list comes out and you have so many people, sometimes even journalists, arguing that we shouldn't have the sunshine list. It, not because they object to the sunshine list in general, but just the idea that this type of information should be disclosed is is you know unbecoming of us. That's That's where it's really tricky. You mentioned the UK earlier. Are there any other examples of peer countries in Europe or elsewhere that managed to do this in an equitable manner? I mean, Norway is the kind of the gold standard here where anyone can look up other people's tax returns. You can see everyone's salary in the country. It's public. You know, they do it in Norway because the taxation rate is so high uh, that you want to make sure it's like a accountability thing and you can report people uh, who have really low taxes, but they're, you know, they're, they're obviously doing really well. What is interesting though, is there was this problem of um, kind of peeping Tom syndrome, I guess, where everyone was just checking everybody's. So I think, I think it's been about maybe six years or so that they passed uh, legislation where, if you go look at someone's tax returns, they can see that you looked at it. So the the number of, of checks fell by something like 90% after that. So that's that's probably a good balance, right? Where you have that that accountability just just out there for everyone to see. But with those checks and balances that exist about, fine, if you want to go snoop on, on what your neighbor is making, you, your neighbor is going to know that you're snooping on what they're making. Is this problem 
too entrenched in Canadian culture. As you mentioned, we like secrecy and privacy. We're very polite. Um, or can the needle still shift? Um, I always wonder if we were really serious about tackling uh, pay discrimination, pay equity, et cetera, what would need to happen? So the the transparency thing, I mean, just has so many implications, including pay. It's not just pay either. It's who's getting promoted, who, you know, all, all of who, who are holding leadership positions, right. et cetera. But it, you know, it, it's just every facet of our country. It's hard to even get at, you know, I obviously as a young reporter, I spent a lot of time um, covering Toronto City Hall and obviously the the story of former Toronto Mayor Rob Ford. Uh, and, you know, I, I often thought when doing that investigation, if this was in the States, this would have been, you know, done years ago. Mm. It was very well known that the the, the mayor at the time had a, a, a serious drug problem um, and was routinely absent from work. His staff was trying to get him in rehab. There were constant police calls to his home and trying to get that information as a Canadian journalist was was so difficult. Um, you know, I remember filing a freedom of information request just to get the, the, uh, the that the, the police wouldn't say anything about the police calls to his home, but I will at least FOI to get a record of all the times that police attended that address. Right. And in a, in a year span or something like that. This is the mayor of Toronto. The police are constantly going to his home He's in charge or has a very strong leadership role in forming their budget and their leadership. This is clearly a matter of public interest. And the records were completely denied to me because it's private. And I remember, you know, speaking to some American journalists at the time. um, It's like, how is it private when police cruisers are parked in your driveway? Like, that's not privacy. That that's it may be uncomfortable, but that's stuff you need to know. This this culture is just so permeated throughout our country. And in terms of how it's going to change, you know, the, the Champlain Tower story was was really interesting to me because, you know, it, with that tragedy, as, it, as the building comes down, Surfside, Florida, this little town within two days had all of the records connected to that building emails, reports, the original drawings, inspections, um, posted online. They just, they just proactively did it. We would never do that here. And I, I wonder if it's going to take some awful tragedy or something for people to wake up, that we need to get real about public transparency. Uh, there, there's, it, it's, not, it's not about snooping. It's about government accountability, holding power to account, investigating corruption. It is extremely hard to do that in this country. Robin, thank you so much for this. A fascinating conversation. Thank you. Robin Doolittle, a part of the Globe and Mail's investigative team. That was The Big Story. You can find more of The Big Story at thebigstorypodcast.ca, including Wednesday's episode about the sixth wave of COVID. I mention that because, as you know, we get letters. We get letters from listeners who are either happy or angry about a given topic. And the reason I note this is because I have never seen anger and praise more evenly mixed than when we covered this wave of COVID. Here's a few. Thanks for the latest episode on COVID. Unfortunately, we still need to hear the up-to-date information on the pandemic. Here's another one. Please stop 
I want to be nice about this because I'm Canadian, but people want to be people, dude. The virus is going to live. We got to live too, dude. Stop this fear-mongering. We don't do episodes like this to scare you. We don't do episodes like this to depress you, even though it sounds depressing. We do episodes like this because there's a virus, people are going to the hospital, people are dying, and there are facts that some people want to hear. So please, ignore them if you want. Praise us if you like. But just like COVID's not going anywhere, neither are these episodes. I'm sorry. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. We'll talk Monday.